because Fern spent about an hour and a half there giving that announcement on me. Well, it's his last opportunity. He had to really plug it. And he's did a terrific job, actually. He's really has worked hard doing this and setting this Filipino night up. And, and we're so glad that it's been, already it's been very successful. We're almost sold out in it. And uh, that's been fantastic. Fern's done a great job. 2 Kings chapter 4 is where we want to go this morning. 2 Kings chapter 4. I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bible. Excuse me, although the story is very familiar. 2 Kings chapter 4, reading from verse 1. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? She said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And he said, Go, borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, then pour it into all those vessels. And set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. He brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. And so the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God. And he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons live on the rest. Amen. Now here is a story about a woman who had a great need. Through no fault of her own, she had fallen upon hard times. We see here that she had just lost her husband through death, and she was just about to lose her sons through debt. That's a pretty grim combination, isn't it? Death and death, that's a double whammy is hitting this woman right away. Death had robbed her of the security of her past and her present, and debt was about to rob her of the security of her future. Her two sons were going to be taken into slavery, and that was the law in those days, and that was perfectly acceptable if you could not pay your debt. Uh, then uh, your sons or your daughters could... Uh, go to be servants until the debt was worked off. And so this was a faithful woman. She was faithful to God. She was faithful to her husband. She was a faithful woman. But nevertheless, even though she was faithful to God and she was faithful to her household, hard times came upon her. I'm sure she made tremendous sacrifices uh, being the wife of a prophet in those days, there would be no salary, there would be no pension plan, there would be no nest egg for the future, there would be absolutely zero security. And to be a widow in those days was pretty tough. Not easy being a widow today, but let me tell you, in those days, it would be very, very difficult indeed. Uh, there was no welfare system, 
you'd be depending on extended family or just the charity of someone around you. But that was it. You'd have to make your own way. So I wonder how she felt at this point. Remember, all these years, however long it may be, she'd been faithful to God, she'd been faithful to her husband, she'd been faithful to ministry, she'd been faithful to her family, and suddenly, almost overnight, she's bereft. Lost her husband, she's about to lose her sons. I wonder how she felt. I wonder if she was about to give up. I wonder if she was about to fold or buckle or run up the white flag and surrender. Actually, she was none of those things. Thank God. Many would have. Many before and many since would have totally given up and said it doesn't work and God's no good and God doesn't care and people don't care and this is what you get for serving the Lord and I've been in ministry and look what's happened to me and so many people at that point would just absolutely have just had totally given up but this woman would not give up this woman believed that somehow there would be an answer she could have been totally disillusioned she could have been very, very angry. She could have been perhaps in the very pit of despair. But she believed. She believed that God could do something. And so, what did she do? She went to the man of God. It says she cried unto the Lord. The man of God to her was the closest thing to God on earth that she could find. That was her connection. And so in that sense, even though she went to the man of God, but in that sense she was crying unto the Lord, God, I need your help. I am desperate for your help. I believe that you can help me. Now she just didn't passively accept this. Her attitude was not, well, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. No, she believed that God could do something. And so she cried unto the Lord. She would not give up. Remember the Syrophoenician woman that came to Jesus? Remember how she cried unto the Lord? Her child was ill, needed a miracle. And Jesus said, but it's not fitting that we should take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. You know, Jews, anybody who was non-Jew, they called them dogs. They were just pagans. They were just dogs to them. And so Jesus tested her a little bit. Remember what she said? She says, well, that's the truth, Lord. But she says, even the little puppies eat the crumbs that falls from the master's table. <laughs> Anybody else would have been highly insulted. But have said, well, I, I come to you looking for mercy and looking for compassion, and you insult me. And she would have went away in a half. Not the wee Syrophoenician woman. She said, well, that's all true, Lord, but but I just want a crumb. Surely I can get a crumb. You remember others that would not give up? You remember the man in the Bible Jesus talked about in the parable who went to his friend's home at midnight? A friend had come to visit him and in the East, hospitality was a big thing and he looked and he had no food, he had no loaves in the house. It was late on. So what did he do? He went to his friend and he knocked on the door at midnight and his friend says, I can't come. My children are in bed. The door's locked. It's midnight. Clear off. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. 
But did he clear off? Did he go away? No, he kept on knocking. The Bible says Jesus, because of his importunity, because he would not give up. In fact, it means more than that, because of his shamefacelessness. We would say, no skin on his face. He was brazen. This was his friend. Of course, if he kept on asking, and he kept on seeking, and he would keep on knocking, his friend would give him what he wanted. And he did give him what he wanted. He just would not give up. Now, what about the little woman on the issue of blood that we talked about a few weeks ago? How that she had to fight her way through that throng, that multitude, and people would be bumping each other, but weak as she was, and on physically unfit as she was, she made her way through till she touched the garment of Christ. What about blind Bartimaeus? Remember whenever he heard that Jesus was coming through and he couldn't see him, but he heard the crowd and he began to shout, Jesus, you son of David, have mercy on me. What did the crowd say? Shut up. He was just a dirty old beggar. But Jesus stopped. Somebody made a demand on him and he stopped. In fact, he shouted all the more, the Bible says. He made a racket and Jesus heard it. And he got a miracle. He got a breakthrough. So this little woman here was not about to give up. And even though we saw in those stories we mentioned how that some of those people could have been very offended, like the Syrophoenician woman or even blind Bartimaeus or whoever, they could have been offended. The man could have been very, very offended by his friend who wouldn't give him the bread at the first asking. You know, somebody said, and it's the truth, that God sometimes offends the mind to reveal the heart. Sometimes God does things that, if we're not careful, could offend us. Because we think, well, God wouldn't do that. Well, sometimes he does. Sometimes he withholds. Sometimes we've got to push a little bit more. Sometimes he offends the mind to reveal the heart to see what's in us to see if we would continue, to see if we would go forward, to see if we would keep on trusting and believing. And so she cried unto the Lord. Then secondly, God was going to teach this woman a very valuable lesson. And it's a lesson that all of us will do well to learn. And here's the lesson. The lesson is that there is a need that is greater than your needs. All of us this morning have needs. Some are greater needs than others. Grant it. But there is a need that is greater than all of your needs. Someone may say, well, my greatest need right now is healing. No, you have a greater need than that. Somebody is saying, well, my greatest need right now is finances. I am desperately short. David, if you only knew my position today. No, you have a greater need than that. Somebody may say, well, my need is a job. Or my need is to have a partner. I'm very lonely. I hate being single. No, you've got a greater need than that. Somebody is saying, well, it's my marriage. If you knew the state of my marriage and it may be in a terrible state for all I know. You say, well, that's my greatest need. No, you've got a greater need than that. Your greater need, your greatest need is simply to trust God, to believe God, to have faith in God, to depend wholly and totally upon Him, to prove Him 
That's all of our greatest need. Because that will take care of all of our needs. Because we all live in a world that's needy. And all of us from time to time will have needs. And some will be tremendous needs. But this, trusting and believing and depending upon on holy believing and proving God, that's our greatest need. And if we can do that, then no matter what needs may arise, we'll say, well, I'm going to look to God. And I'm going to trust wholly in Him to meet the need. Elisha was about to get her mind off her great needs. And she had great needs onto her greatest need. And this seems to be God's way. God wants us to focus on the answer rather than the problem. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get a problem, it tends to take up a bit of my energy and thinking time. Are you the same? No, you're super spiritual. You're not like God. You're not like me at all. You can just handle everything. Nothing bothers you. Of course, we're all the same, aren't we? But we need to learn to focus on the answer rather than the problem. Now, let me give you an example. Take David and Norma sitting here. I'm looking right at them. I'm focusing on them. But even though I'm focusing on them, I can see other people around. But I'm focusing on them. Now, saying I was looking at them, saying that was my problem I was looking at. Not that you're a problem, by the way. You're a blessing. So don't be insulted when I say it. Saying I'm looking at you, you're my problem. I'm looking at you, right? Now, all around, there are other things. I can see the need. I can see the answer. Answer may be over there. It may be over there. It may be back there. It may be over here. I can see the answer, but I'm focusing on the need. And sometimes we know the answer. We know God's the answer. We know he is the answer. We see that, but we're so focusing on the need. We can't get our mind of the need. We know in the back of our mind God's the answer, but we can't get our mind of the need. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, God's different. God can see the problem, but he's focusing on the answer. And he sees your problem, but he's focusing on your answer. And this is what you and I have got to do. We've got to focus on the answer. That's what we've got to do. We see the problem. We've got to focus on the answer. And it seemed to be this is what Elisha was doing this little one. She had a great problem, no question about that. But she was in dire straits. But he had to get her focusing on the answer rather than focusing on the problem. And so he said this in verse 2. What shall I do for you? Tell me. What shall I do for you? Tell me. That's a lovely statement, isn't it? I was thinking about this last night. What shall I do for you? Tell me. Imagine God saying that to you this morning. What shall I do for you? Tell me. Tell me. You remember the old hymn the man from Bonbridge wrote? But focusing on the Lord in prayer. 
Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So he says, tell me, what do you want me to do? Sometimes God's willingness to give is more than our willingness to receive. Then he said, what do you have in the house? Seemed a simple little question. What do you have in the house? Now he's starting to get her to focus on the answer here. What do you have in the house? In other words, sometimes, sometimes God asks us to give him something to work a miracle with. Now, not that he needs it, because he's God. God who created the universe doesn't need something to work a miracle with, but we need to give it. And sometimes he asks us to do something or to give him something that he can work a miracle with, because we need to give it. We need to enter into this. Take, for instance, Mary and Martha at the grave of their brother Lazarus. Jesus knew full well that he was going to raise him from the dead. A tremendous supernatural miracle of God. But what did he ask them to do? Roll away the stone. Surely, the Christ who could raise the dead could just speak and the stone would roll away of its own accord. I mean, when Peter was not prison, wasn't he? When he got to the gate, the angel led him to the gate of the prison. What happened? It opened of its own accord. I mean, God can do those sort of things. But he wanted them to do something. And so they had to roll away the stone. The man with the withered hand. Jesus was about to heal him. You feel well he was about to heal him. Could have healed him, just spoke the word. But he says, stretch out your hand. He made him do something. And sometimes God does this with us. He wants us to give him something to work a miracle with. He said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from your neighbors. Empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. Psalm 31.19 says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Who knows what Almighty God has got laid up for us, waiting for us to put our trust in Him before the sons of men. What a testimony it is when you trust God and you get a breakthrough and you get a miracle, you get a need met, you get a supply, you get something happen. What a testimony that is. I know that last Monday night, you ladies and the ladies night, you were given testimony. You know, those little stones of remembrance and how God met you at the point of your need. And you look back on that and what a testimony that was that many of you had. Do all that you can humanly do. Fill the water pots with water, Jesus said. Surely, surely the one who was going to turn water into wine could have turned air into water, couldn't he? I mean, same difference, isn't it? I mean, God can do anything. But he didn't. Do all that you can humanly do. He chose not to do that part. That's the part they could do. So he says, you do that part. You fill the water pots with water. Then he did the bit they couldn't do. He did the miracle bit. Roll away the stone. Go wash in the Jordan. The prophet said 
to Naaman, go wash in the Jordan. <laughs> sure, he could have just spoken. In fact, Naaman, that great warlord of the king, thought that he would come out and just wave his rod and speak over him, and it would be a great big show. He says, in fact, he sent his servant out and says, tell him to go wash in the Jordan. And he was indignant. That was a guy who got his mind offended to reveal his heart, by the way. He got very indignant, didn't he? He wasn't going to do it. And then some of his servants says, well, look, if he'd asked you to do a big hard thing, you'd have done it, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, he's asked you to do a simple thing. Just go and wash. And as he went and washed in the Jordan, what happened? He was made clean. You see, he had to do something. And often it's like this. Jesus said to those disciples, go launch out into the deep. There's always a pile of stuff underneath my table here. It's hitting my ankles. Go wash, he said. And then he said to the disciples, go let down your nets for a draft. Jesus knew where the fish were. In fact, Jesus could have got the fish to jump in the boat if he wanted. But he made them do something. They had to do something. Every step of faith this little woman took, every vessel she borrowed brought her near to her breakthrough. Now listen to me. You could be nearer your breakthrough than you think. Have you been taking steps of faith? Have you been praying? Have you been doing all that you can do? Well, perhaps you are nearer your breakthrough than you could ever imagine. So don't give up. He said, go out, borrow as many vessels as you can get your hands on. Go to your neighbors. Not a few, he said. Not a few. He says, just go out, get as many as you can. Do all that you can humanly do. So you never know this morning just how close you are to that breakthrough that you've been desiring. Maybe you're almost there. Then he said, go in, shut the door upon you and your two sons. That's an interesting statement here. Go in, shut the door upon you and your two sons. They've got all their vessels now. They've got them all laid out. He says, here's the final thing to do. Just go in, shut the door. See, a door does two things. A door shuts things in, but it also shuts things out. And some things we need to shut in, and there's some things we need to shut out. Sometimes you have to shut out the voices that tell you this can't happen. This will never work. You will never get the breakthrough. Your life will never change. You'll never get that job. You'll never get that partner. You'll never get that healing. You'll never get that supply. You'll never get... And those voices want to shout at you continually. There's some things that we need to shut out. Fear. Doubt. Unbelief. It's amazing, how, it's amazing how that you can go along tremendously well, believe in the Scriptures, believe in the Word, believing everything, and suddenly a little bit of fear pops into your heart. It's amazing how quickly that can just so infect your whole spirit. And before you know it, panic is setting in, isn't it? And worry and doubt and everything crams in. That comes in on the back of fear. We need to shut some things out. 
But we need to shut some things in. We need to shut in things like hope and faith and focusing on the answer and looking to God and believing in his word. You need to shut them in. It's not easy. It's a discipline. It's a fight. But we need to shut them in. Because if we don't shut them in, and we don't shut some stuff out, it's not going to happen. Here's the little woman. She got all of her vessels. Her sons went out. They borrowed them all. He says, go in now. Shut the door. Shut it. Shut it tight. There's just you and God now. There's nobody else in. No neighbors looking on. Just you and God. And sometimes it gets like that with us, isn't it? It's just us and the Lord, isn't it? We've done all we can do. It's as much as we can, far as we can go. Can't take it any further. We've done everything possible there is to do. Now, it's over to you, God. Because I can't do any more. And in a sense, this is what was happening to her. She was getting to focus on the answer now. She had done everything he asked to do, everything that she was supposed to do. She did the whole thing, sitting there, doors closed. Now, Lord, it's over to you. I've obeyed. I've done everything. Maybe that's the place you're at this morning. You say, David, I have prayed. I have believed. I have trusted. I've read. I've done everything I know to do. I'm at the place now where it's over to you, God. Well, that's a good place to be. And you could be very, very, very close to your breakthrough that you need if you've done that. And so, notice in verse 6, she poured out vessel after vessel after vessel, and the oil only stopped flowing when the vessels were filled. The supply only stopped when the need was met. This is why he told her to go out and borrow as many vessels as you can get, because he knew that God's supply was bigger than her need. Did you hear me? And the supply only stopped when she ran out of vessels. Had she had more vessels, that supply would have been endless, infinite, unending. And God's supply is like that. The only limiting factor here was the demand and not the supply. And if we can remember, the only limiting factor with us often is us because God's supply is greater than our demands. Now, we don't think that whenever we have a demand. Sure we don't. How is God going to do this? How is he going to work this? Where is it going to come from? But if we can just leave it to him, do all that we can do, then we will find that his supply will be greater than our need. Now, there's many of you in this room today, and you have proven that very point over and over again. You wondered how it was going to happen. You wondered how that supply was going to come. You wondered how that job you were going to get. All these things popped up. We'll never get a husband. We'll never get a wife. We'll never get a partner. And then suddenly, you find out that God's supply was greater than your demand. God is a very practical God. Because in verse 7, he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debt. Now, she had a debt. It might sound harsh and unjust and unfair, but he says, now go and pay your debt. You owe, so go and pay. You've got the wherewithal to do it now. Then he said, and you and your sons live on 
the rest. This woman started out looking for mercy. Then she got a miracle. And now God is giving her the means to be able to live the rest of her life. Now she has a full supply. He says, you go, you pay your debt, whatever is left over, now you can live off the rest. She probably had a wee industry going now. She probably went back to those vessels, back to her neighbors. Oh, by the way, see that empty vessel you gave me? Look, it's full. Would you like to buy this oil? <laughs> I'll give you a wee discount for loaning me the, for the jug, but would you like to buy the... I mean, she had a wee industry going here now. See, God is very, very practical when it comes to our needs. Isn't it interesting that the very first miracle that Jesus ever did to manifest his glory was turning water into wine at a wedding? How more practical could you get than that? Such an embarrassment for that young bridegroom. It was his job to make sure there was not His weddings lasted about a week in those days. It was his job to make sure. Here he's starting out in life. He's got a new bride. His in-laws are there. He's about to let them all down. But Jesus is at the wedding, isn't he? And he did the most practical thing that he possibly could do. He turned water into wine. And he met the need of that young man. And saved all of that embarrassment. What a bad start that would have been to his marriage. But he did something very, very practical. Never underestimate how practical God can be. You know, we're going to have Bob here tomorrow night. And listen, he, he, what he has written a book. I don't say he could write a book about his stories, but he has. His son wrote it for him. But he could tell you story after story after story after story of how God met their needs in a practical way. I remember telling me one time whenever him and Alba decided to come back from Africa and, you know, they were, they'd spent so many years, it was time to come home. And Bobby says, I looked around the house and thought, well, I've got this to sell, I've got that to sell, I've got the other to sell, and that'll get us when he's come back to Ireland, that'll set us up, and we've got this to sell and that to sell. And Emma says, we're taking none of it, we're giving a whole lot away. He says, that was Emma. She says, I'll give you the shirt of her back, just give everything away. So he says, you never argued with Alma, vice Emma. You never argued with Alma, so we just gave the whole lot away. Best thing we ever did, he says. <laughs> we came over here, he says, we had more stuff than you can imagine. He says, people giving us and all the rest of it. <laughs> God is very, very, very practical, isn't he? He's tremendously practical. Five loaves and two fishes. Those people were hungry. They'd been with Jesus for three days. They needed to eat. They listened to the preaching. They needed to eat. Disciples said, send them away. We're tired, we're weary, we want to go and eat. Send that lot away. Not just like preachers, a bunch of preachers, isn't it? Not just like them, isn't it? And Jesus said, no, he says, they need to eat. And he says, you're going to give them something to eat too. That shocked them, didn't it? But he's very practical. I wonder did that wee boy get to take one of those big baskets home to his mother and father. Remember the 12 that was left over? I wonder did he get to take one of those home with him. Sure he did, because God's a very practical God. Remember the little girl that was raised from the dead? Wasn't it Jairus' daughter? What was the first thing Jesus said when he raised her from the dead? Give her something to eat. The very first thing he said. Give her something to eat. You remember the man of Gadara? Remember the demonized man? He ran naked among the tombs, was out of his mind. Remember whenever Jesus went over and cast those dark forces out of him? And then he was found sitting, clothed 
And in his right mind, where did he get the clothes from? I got a sneaky feeling. It doesn't tell us I got a sneaky feeling that Jesus made sure he had clothes on him. But the clothes somewhere. This God's very practical. He's concerned about all of your daily needs, whatever they may be. He gave that Roman centurion his servant back, didn't he? The one who was so seriously ill. He gave the widow of Nain her son back, the one who was on the way to bury him. Mary and Martha gave them her, their brother back. You know, I was often thinking about this. He was probably the breadwinner in the house. And they would have been left. And he loved this family. He raised them from the dead. We don't know how long after that, but for several years, he was still in that home. It's very, very practical. He gave the blind man back his sight. He gave the lame man back his legs. He could go on and go on. All practical miracles. Because he needed his sight. The man needed his legs. Wouldn't be a beggar anymore. God thinks of every single need that you have got today. Physical, in your mind, in your emotions, your material needs, whatever it may be. God thinks of them all. And here's this story. Well, this little woman... And she had to trust God. And God gave her a tremendous, outstanding miracle. Now he said, just go and live you and your sons on the rest. And what a wonderful testimony she got. Because she trusted the Lord and the Lord met her need. Let's pray. Lord, there are too many needs in this room for, for me to enumerate today. Every single person has got a need. You know how to meet that need. So I pray today that as we trust in you, as we wholly depend upon you, as we take all of those little steps of faith, as we do everything humanly possible to do, I trust that we are one more step closer to our breakthrough. Lord, there's some that's just on the brink of it. There's others who's a little way to go. But Lord, you've got a plan and a purpose. And you know how to meet every single need. And at the end of it, you'll give us a testimony of your grace and your goodness. So we look to you today for every mercy that you give, for every miracle that you can perform, for every means that you want to impart to us to live our lives.